We're continuing on in our series, Feeding, where we're discussing the things that we take in that develop us spiritually. For the last two weeks, we've talked about feeding on Scripture. Today, I want to begin by thinking about not thinking. Thinking about not thinking. Do you ever zone out? Oh yeah, some of you are just like, what, what do you say? When you're driving, do you lose track of time? You've ever been in the car and you're going someplace and you're suddenly there and you're like, whoa, how did this happen? I remember nothing about the process of getting here. Uh, Zoning out and spacing out actually has a psychological description and definition that's dissociation. It's a mental process that causes lack of connection between a person's thoughts and their memory or even their sense of identity. It's a natural mindedness or mindlessness that we lapse into periodically. Natural. We need it sometimes, don't we? Sometimes. The problem with sometimes is it's more often than not with many of us. Uh, It's not so much that we're always disengaged, but rather sometimes we're actually engaged with our minds and with trivial matters, with small things, with minuscule things, with distractions. So we can zone out with Netflix or with a video game or by just staring at our phones and just time just rolls past and we've actually accomplished nothing. Have you been there? A few years ago, I was driving some students home from a youth event out at Northern Hills. And so we were coming across the top of the 275 loop and we were engaged in menial banter about a game. And as we were going along, uh, we talked and talked and talked, and I looked up and I said, Riverbend, next right. I had gone almost to Kentucky with these students who, by the way, were supposed to be home about 15 minutes prior. Call your parents, tell them your youth minister tried to take you to Kentucky. Uh, I'm telling you this to not only convince you that Uh, maybe you don't want me as part of your commute, but also to let you know that while this is natural for us, while this is normative for us, it's also kind of dangerous. Mindlessness is a part of human life, but it's a part of human life that many in our culture are striving for. We're chasing it down. There are many people on this planet right now who, if we were honest, if we assessed their values, would say that their primary goal in this life is to keep those mental distractions going every day for the rest of their lives. Every moment of every day till we die. If you're living for neural disengagement, if, if you want to spend the rest of your life watching television or playing video games or engage in social media or inane texting conversations, if that's you, you're like a person who's trying to survive on a diet of cotton candy. It does not do well. One year in and things are going to be ugly. Two years in, ten years in, a lifetime in, and you have destroyed your spirit. Today we're going to discuss feeding the mind. What is feeding the mind? Feeding the mind involves reading Scripture. I mean, we talked about that last week, right? It involves reading Scripture, but it's not just reading Scripture. Feeding the mind involves capturing ideas from all different venues and all different realms of academia in this life. So it's taking things like philosophy and going, that belongs to my God. History, my Lord deserves this in his service. The sciences, these things serve my God. They're a description of what he's made. Feeding the mind means that we take not just what's in the scriptures, but we go beyond that even to the rest of the world and we say, this belongs to my God. I will take every idea that's here and I will make it serve him. That's what feeding the mind looks like. Now, before we actually begin feeding the mind today, I want to 
begin by seeing how well you fed your mind this past week and memorizing your scripture. Let's go to our scripture memory for this month. You ready? Your words were found, and I, and they, or I'm sorry, and, and your words became for me a, and the delight or desire of my, for I have been called by your, O God of hosts. Excellent. Hey, you guys, you're doing better. Good. Excellent. Fantastic. Let's begin uh, this morning's sermon with a word of prayer. Let's talk to our Lord. Um, Father, this morning I'm going to introduce some ideas that I know not everybody's going to readily embrace. And so, Master, I ask you, uh, Father, with your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us. And God, where conviction needs to take place, I pray that that would take place. I pray, Father, that we would be open to your word in this regard. Father, that every one of us would at this moment be saying, I'm ready to change my mind if it conforms my mind to your mind. Lord, let that be the case for me. Let this be the case for brothers and sisters in this room and those who are watching online right now. Father, we want to know you more. It's in your most precious name we pray, Lord God. Amen. I want to start by discussing intellectual apathy. Intellectual apathy, a laziness of the mind. And I want to start here because this is where many of us are in our faith. We're lazy when it comes to intellectual endeavors. We, we engage in a refusal to think. All of us, most of, well, I should say most of us, are on the hunt for a good excuse constantly. We want a good excuse. We want a reason that we can set aside the mind life. Let me ask you this question. How did you feel on your last day of high school? For those of you who were there, right? For some of you, that is still on the horizon. And oh, so soon. How did you feel on your last day of high school? Now, I remember my last day of high school vividly. I remember walking down the hallway and there were people crying because, of course, they were going to miss relationships. And there were people who were very stressed out. You could just see their anxiety because the next phase in life and what does that hold and who am I and what am I going to be? Not me. I was floating down the hallway on the air. I could not, seriously, I had a smile just beaming as I thought to myself, never again will I be subject to academic slavery. (laughs) Now, if you know my story, um, you know that that's not the case. I, I I got out of high school and I ended up spending six years in college after high school and my job every year every day ever since has been involved in study, reading, research, and debate. It's part of who I am now. But here's what you need to know. It's not part of who I am naturally. My natural inclination is to distraction. If I could spend the rest of my life in front of a video game, if I could spend the rest of my life without talking to somebody, I'd probably be okay with that. God is not okay with that. And so what was not natural to me has become supernatural to me in a sense. I found this. I found that as I engage my mind, as I throw my mind in the service of my God, that my passions emerge for it. That I am fed in a way, I'm fed in a way spiritually that I have never been otherwise. And this is why I go back to it day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. I love this. God is feeding me here. I'm asking you to be involved in that feeding as well. Some of you, like me, do not have a natural proclivity to study. Amen? Amen? Has school been out for you for a long time? 
Has it been a long time since you have dipped into the realm of study? Are you naturally like I am? Well, have you provided yourself good excuses for it? Okay, good. I'm going to try to knock down the best excuses I know of for not engaging your mind. So here's where we're going to start. We're going to start by knocking out excuses. Excuse number one, I'm not a cerebral person. I'm a dummy. I'm not a brain type. Right? And, and I love the humility in the church that there are so many people who are willing to say this, even if maybe they're, they're not. I'm not a cerebral person. Um, let me say this. I bet you are as regards to things you care about. I bet you are as regards things you care about. I bet you know your job backward and forward. I bet you could even tell your bosses what's wrong with your position and what's wrong with the whole company. Am I right? You know it well. If, if, you're a, if you're a housewife, I bet you could look around your household and I bet you could tell me everything about every kid that's in your home. You know them inside and out. You can tell by their facial expressions when they've done something, right? Because you know the things you care about. I bet if you love sports, I bet you spend a lot of time learning names, positions, checking records and how people are doing different seasons. Some seasons are easier than others, like when they don't have any sports. But I bet you know, if you care, I bet you're paying attention and I bet you are an expert on that thing. Isn't that right? If you're romantically interested in somebody, right? So if you're, if you're a teenager and you want to pursue dating somebody, I bet you're finding out everything you can about that person. If you're a spouse, I hope that you know your spouse backward and forward. I hope that you're an expert on that person because you really care. That being said, I do not doubt for a second that you are an expert and you are brilliant when it comes to things you care about. What does that say about the fact that you don't know a ton of things about God? Here's another excuse. I'm learning impaired. I'm learning impaired. For, for many of us, I've got a short attention span. There are those with a learning disability. And for some people, they just go, look, I'm not pursuing the deeper aspects of this life and, and academic pursuits because that's not me. I can't do that. I'm learning impaired. Let me just say this at the outset. Some of the greatest minds in history have had learning disabilities. People like Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, Einstein, Henry Ford, Leonardo da Vinci had learning disabilities. Beyond that, many of the great Christian thinkers like Isaac Newton and Abraham Lincoln had learning disabilities. Now, I'm not qualified to diagnose people across time. However, when I read my Bible and I look at the person of Peter and I see his impetuousness and his ill-considered interjections, when I look at his inclination towards reckless action and his energy, I would not be surprised even a little if I found out that Peter was ADHD. Right? Now that said, regarding disabilities, God is not holding, accountable, or holding you accountable for what you cannot accomplish. Let me say that again. God does not hold you accountable for what you cannot accomplish. However, God has what we call perfect hypothetical knowledge, which means this. God knows what you can accomplish. And that is what you're being held to account for. God knows what you're able to do. Even if you can offer excuses to every other person and even yourself and convince yourself that you're incapable with regard to academic pursuits, the Lord knows differently. The Lord knows what you're able to do. Now, that being said, do any of us have the same aptitude as any other person? I know for a fact that I will never be Thomas Aquinas. I'm never going to be Blaise Pascal. I'm never going to be Descartes or G.K. Chesterton or John Lennox or Ravi Zacharias. I know that I will never be there. 
With that said, do then I, I just then go, well, if I can't do that, I may as well not do anything. Is that responsible? You know what that sounds like? That sounds like varying talents. You gave me this, Lord, eh, I'll keep it safe. The Lord is holding you to account for what you are able to accomplish. So what are you able to accomplish? Some years back, I was privileged to meet Norman Geisler. Have any of you ever heard of Norman Geisler, by show of hands? Norman Geisler is one of the most brilliant Christians of this past century. He is one of the fathers of modern Christian apologetics. This is a picture of him over here on the right. Geisler has written over 100 books. He was a popular professor, professor at uh, Trinity Theological Seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, Liberty, Southern Evangelical, Veritas International. He actually founded two seminaries on his own. He's the first president of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, uh, the International Society of Christian Apologetics. He was editor-in-chief on the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. In personal conversation with him, I actually got to talk to this guy for a little bit. He told me this. He said at one point in time, he had William Lane Craig brilliant scholar, and Ravi Zacharias in the same class before either of them had appeared on the world stage. This gives you a sense of who this guy was. This guy is important. This guy is a brain. Norman Geisler got up at this conference to speak to us, and here's what he said. He said, um, he started out by telling us a story of an illiterate child who had a learning disability. And he, he said, the schools kept shoving this boy forward grade after grade despite the fact that he was approaching a forced graduation and still could not read. This boy was a failure in every academic sense. He said this boy came to know Jesus Christ at the year of eight, or 18 years of age and that God looked at this illiterate academic failure and said, I'm going to make that kid a scholar. He said, I'm that boy. He couldn't read when he was 18 years old. He came to Christ and he became that. Now how? How does something like that happen? How do dolts end up becoming amazing people for the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is given to us to some degree or another in Scripture. Acts 14, 13 expresses this same thing. You remember Peter and John go, and they're speaking in front of the Sanhedrin. As people are listening to them speak, they're like, where did these guys get this knowledge? These are untrained, uneducated men, and they're stunned by how much these people know. Why? Because we serve the infinite God who has all wisdom, has all knowledge, and says, pray for wisdom and I will grant it to you. That God, the God who raised the dead, is calling you to occasionally read a book. Do you think it's possible? Daniel McCoy recounts a story that well describes the drive of Norman Geisler. He said this, uh, part of what explains Norm's impressive output is one of the pictures hanging in his home. We were eating pizza and talking about my future plans when Norm told me about a picture he owns of a boy with an apple on his head. Obviously, William Tell's son, right? Yes, but the story does not end happily. The arrow has missed the apple and is instead burrowed into the boy's forehead. And the caption reads, aim higher. <laughs> take a cue from an expert, aim higher. Norm Geisler believed that God could take him and teach him and train him and make him into something incredible. Have you met Christians who are like this? Christians who from the outside just look like they could accomplish nothing academically, or maybe they seem stunted academically, but I think about one guy I knew when I was working at Kings Island as a high schooler. Uh, we were lifeguarding together, and this guy seemed dingy. You know what I mean by dingy? Like, like just clueless about most everything until, until any topic intersected with the concept of God. 
And then what happened was he would show himself to be a brain unlike anything you've ever seen. Depth and wisdom and knowledge and insight. How? Because God can give us accomplishments that run way beyond what we are naturally capable of. Do you believe it? Some people will give themselves a better excuse, though. They'll say knowledge is, uh, knowledge is actually unspiritual. Have you encountered this in the church? I'm not an intellectual Christian. I'm a spiritual Christian. And some people set it forth like that. These are not mutually exclusive things. These things should not be separated. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you're going to be a spiritual follower of Christ, you'd better be intellectually engaged. The best question we can ask somebody who offers up that contention that the intellectual life, the mind life is unspiritual is this. Well, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be spiritual? Tell me how that happens outside of the mind life. Here's what we often discover. People who run in along these lines equate spirituality with emotion. When they say I'm a spiritual person, they mean I'm an emotional person or I'm a passionate person. Sometimes people will say I'm a spiritual person and they mean that I do certain things within the church. That makes me spiritual. They keep it vague. And why do they keep it vague? Why would people like spiritual things to be undefinable, ineffable? Why would they like it to remain vague? For this reason, if it is undefined, if it's vague, then it can't be criticized. It cannot be challenged, and it cannot be measured. Keep it vague. By the way, if you like that definition of spirituality, nice and vague, you're in good company. There are a lot of people in and out of the Christian faith, who will tell you that they're spiritual people. Have you had a conversation with somebody, you start talking about Christ, and they go, oh, I'm a very spiritual person. What does that mean? They don't know either. It just means that I've got some kind of depth that you can't see, can't understand, can't measure, can't, measure, can't, can't know. Oprah approves. And all of heaven gags. That is not what we're intended to be. Some will say that knowledge is foolishness. Doesn't the Bible say that the wisdom of men is foolishness? Well, yeah, it does. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 18 through, 20, uh, 18 through 22 says this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you uh, thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, that the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. And you might go, oh, well, I'm glad we got to this verse before we got any further in this sermon. Now we can pray and go home. Clearly, God wants us to check out mentally. Is that what that verse says? Let's continue. For all things, if you've got your Bibles open, underline all things. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world, underline that, or the life or, or life or death or things present or things to come all things belong to you now paul's just spoken to the corinthian church before all of this and here's what you need to know remember last week we talked about context when paul writes the church at corinth he's got critics who are there do you know who his critics are who are there they're academics who showed up and went paul knows some things but we're also quite brilliant you should all listen to us and they began misleading the church and so when Paul writes them, he's not saying wisdom is useless. Guys, if you've read the Bible, you know the Bible speaks highly of wisdom throughout the whole of the scriptures, right? 
So it can't be saying that wisdom is completely useless. He's saying, I hope that you understand that when I showed up to preach to you, I did so in the power of God so that you would not base your belief on simple man-made arguments, i.e. what these guys are doing, but that you would base your belief on the power of God. In other words, when I speak to you, I remember, I'm the guy who showed up in your church and I began performing miracles and I led you to Christ. Remember where authority comes from when it comes to my word versus the word of these other guys. Guess who you can trust? Understand what Paul is saying there. Now, some people will go so far as to say feeding the mind, pursuing the mind life, pursuing knowledge is dangerous. I've encountered this a lot in the church. I've occasionally come across Christians that say um, the mind life is kind of like a live viper. It's dangerous. It's going to steal your children from the faith. Be careful. And they often cite statistics of students who fall away during college. Do you know why students fall away during college? Usually because the church has not done its job. We did not train them before they got to college to equip them with the knowledge, insights, and understanding they need in order to make a showing for Jesus Christ in the collegiate circuit. That's true of life as well. Those young 20 years, we have got to equip people so they're ready to engage at that stage in life. Now we're, we're told in the uh, scriptures, if you look at, first, or at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this to the church at Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elementary spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. There, there, I see it, there. Thinking too much is bad, philosophy is bad, it's right there in the text. Let me point out here what's happening. Paul isn't saying here that philosophy is hollow and deceptive. He's saying there is a type of philosophy that is hollow and deceptive, and that's the kind you need to be wary of. Guys, does bad philosophy exist? Yes, absolutely it does. And what's C.S. Lewis's prescription for dealing with that? C.S. Lewis said this in The Weight of Glory. If all the world were Christian, it might not matter if all the world were uneducated. School's out. If everybody's a Christian, doesn't matter if we're, doesn't matter if we're educated or not. But as it is, cultural life will exist outside of the church, whether it exists inside or not. To be ignorant and simple now, not only to be able, or uh, now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground would be to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have under God no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy, listen, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than because bad philosophy needs to be answered. The cool intellect must work not only against the cool intellect on the other side, but against the muddy heathen mysticism which denies intellect altogether. So should you be intellectually engaged? Do you care about your kids? Do you care about future generations? Well, now is the time to be intellectually engaged. We should not leave this to every other Christian and go, well, somebody else is more mentally capable than I am. No, it's every one of our jobs. But wait a minute, Ben. I just want to have faith like a child. Shouldn't we have faith like a child? <laughs> Dr. Rusty Osborne, professor of biblical and theological studies, said this. He said, uh, the notion of childlike faith is often morphed into something more troubling. He said, I've encountered uh, many Christians who rebut tough questions with, uh, about faith flippantly with things like this. I don't know, I mean, aren't we supposed to have faith like a child? I mean, no one can know everything. Can't we, can't we and shouldn't we just leap into our arms like a child 
or leap into the arms of our father like a child leaps into a parent's arms, something like that. Sadly, in this context, childlike faith becomes tar slapped on the pruned uh, branch of a tree to prevent further growth. If there's a problem in our understanding or if we venture into uncharted theological waters, we can always retreat to the neverland of childlike faith. I agree with what Rusty Osborne said. The issue here is that the pursuit of childlikeness seems to run headlong into another issue that is very prominent in scriptures, the issue of maturity. Everyone say maturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. If you have banked on the idea of a childlike faith, I want you to pay attention to this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Listen to this. Brethren, do not be like children in your thinking. Brethren, do not be like children in your thinking. Yet, in regard to evil, be infants. In other words, be like a child when it comes to evil, be innocent, but don't be like children when it comes to your thinking. In your thinking, be mature. This is Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, the same passage where he, or the same book where he talked about not admiring the wisdom of the world, right? Colossians 1.28, Paul says this, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ, or mature in Christ. So question, where does the notion of childlike faith come from? Where did that emerge from? Well, it turns out the phrase childlike faith is nowhere in the Bible. It's not there. When people discuss such, they usually have in mind Matthew 18, verse 3, Mark, 14, verse tw- uh, or Mark uh, 10, verse 14, and Luke 18, verse 17. In these passages, Jesus is telling us to be childlike, but he never mentions faith at all. Do you know what way we're supposed to be like a child? In our humility. He says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become childlike. In order to do what in the kingdom of heaven? Enter. Does that mean he he expects us to stay as children in the kingdom of heaven? There's no indication of that. This is how you come into the kingdom of heaven. This is not how you remain in the kingdom of heaven. So in what way then is the Bible instructing us to be childlike? Well, there are whole books written on this topic, but let me recommend a few ways that it is good for us to be childlike. Number one, children approach boldly and seek encounters. Go to God. That's childlike. Children ask questions. That's childlike. Children recognize inadequacy, immaturity, the need to be cared for in order to achieve maturity. That's childlike. Children have reasons for what they believe. They might not be good reasons, but they've got reasons. Ask them. Those reasons, by the way, are growing in depth and insight as they're being parented well. Children are open about emotions. Children have a tender conscience. Children give vent to creativity and imagination. They're easily moved to wonder and awe. A child's joy is obvious. Children exhibit hope. Children are characterized by playfulness. Children love. Children have humor and laughter. Children trust. Children forgive and forget. They have boundless energy, and they possess a willingness to learn and grow. Be like a child in that regard. By contrast, I want you to consider childish faith. And by childish here, I'm being derogatory. There's a type of person in the church who is self-serving and self-seeking and congratulates themselves on that position. The type of person who looks to their own interests and expects God to do the same. 
The type of person who thinks the church exists to serve them. And why didn't the worship service sing this song? And I want this and I need that. And is this church feeding me? Wah, wah, give me my bottle. Right? That exists in the church. That ought not exist in the church. And what's pathetic about this is a lot of people who occupy that position think that's exactly what God wants from them. Look at how dependent I am. Parents, if you had a kid and uh, your, your kid's perfectly normal and functional, you're okay feeding them with a spoon when they're two years old and helping them out, right? Maybe one and a half. If they're 30 years old and still expecting you to change their pants and feed them with a spoon, there's a problem. There are people in the church who have invested almost no time, since the time of VBS, invested almost no time in their lives in growth, personal growth, and depth. We were singing a song earlier that, that talked about, you know, Lord, I find you in the seeking. When, when I'm looking for you, I find you. Lord, I find you in the doubts. When I'm having doubt, that's where I find you. Guys, can I suggest that that is one of the best opportunities to learn about God? When you have a question you can't answer, you have an opportunity to grow deep in your faith. Amen? If you've been hoping that the scriptures provide you a basis for cognitive retirement, if you've been hoping that, God, uh, that God's given you leave to take the rest of forever off mentally, if you want God to affirm your ideological apathy and your laziness, sorry to disappoint you, the scriptures give you no such permission. If you disengage your mind from your faith, you are spiritually derelict in your duties. Time to re-engage the mind life. Let's talk about the mind life. Being mentally engaged. Here's what I mean by that. I mean reading, I mean thinking, I mean listening to audio debates and investigating questions on your own and having ideas that you're dealing with and talking to other Christians about the things that are on your mind and going to classes in the church so that you can deepen your knowledge, deepen your insights, understand more, grow more in depth. We also have spiritual disciplines like silence and solitude that contribute radically to a mind life. Are you afraid of being alone with your thoughts? It's probably of the adversary. God knows that if he can get you quiet and thinking that there's a strong possibility you're going to get deeper. How does a person become wise? This is a good first question for life, right? How does a man become wise? What do we do to become wise? Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. I'm reading from the Amplified here, the Amplified Bible. Listen to this. The reverent fear of the Lord, that is worshiping him and regarding him as truly awesome, is the beginning and preeminent part of knowledge. That is its starting point in essence. Are you afraid of God? Do you fear the Lord? Some of you are just staring at me. Do you? If you know God, you should have a healthy fear of God. That should be a springboard into mental engagements. Look at the next part of this. It describes the opposite person, the person who does not pursue the intellectual depth. Here's how it describes the person. But arrogant fools, mm, arrogant fools despise skillful and godly wisdom and instruction and self-discipline. What is the antithesis of gaining knowledge? Is it being ignorant? No. The antithesis of gaining knowledge is despising knowledge. And God calls that person throughout the Proverbs a fool. Well, why should we work to feed the mind? Let me give you some good reasons. Number one, God is the ultimate mind. God is the ultimate mind. Can I hear an amen? 
Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is the ultimate mind. He is as far above us as the heavens are above us in terms of mental capacity. That is a good and godly thing. That means this, the more you research, study, and understand, the closer to God you are in a sense. Your mind has grown. Secondly, all knowledge belongs to God. All knowledge belongs to God. How much knowledge belongs to God? All knowledge belongs to God. God is what we call omniscient. Omniscient is kind of a big word. It just means all-knowing. God is all-knowing. Here's what that means. Every true thing in the cosmos, every truth, God knows. We also know that God is sovereign. That means God has complete control. So here's what that means. Not only does God know all truths in the universe and all hypothetical truths of what might be, but God also fashioned every single truth in the cosmos. He created it as it is. Are you afraid of knowledge? Why? It belongs to your Lord. If anything is true, God has made it. Amen? Discovering and understanding those truths then is a good and godly enterprise. The scientific founders of, of our world, by the way, by the way, I want to do a whole sermon on this at some stage of the game. The sciences ride on the backs of theology. The sciences were born on the back of theology. The, the original scientific founders, most of those guys were phenomenal Christians, and they believed that engaging in the pursuit of the sciences was part of how they worshiped God. It was finding him in the natural world. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says this, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search out a matter. Are you engaged in the royal enterprise of learning more? As you dig into history, as you dig into philosophy and the sciences, do you find your God's fingerprints on the midst of all these things and glorify him in that process? Romans chapter 1 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what's been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, God's hand, God's fingerprint is obvious on the natural world. Are you worshiping God by engaging in understanding of the natural world? Thirdly, the mind life is a method of worship. The mind life is a method of worship. As we dig deeply into the things of this life, we worship our God. Look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I want you guys to turn to this passage. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now you know... Romans 12 gives us the spiritual act of worship. Paul defines to the Romans, he says, look, this is what it looks like to worship our God. This is how it looks like to really worship him in spirit. Let's look carefully at it here. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies or the pities of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, give your whole self to God. That's what it looks like for you to worship God. Give your whole self to him. But look at verse 2. We get a further qualification. And do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, so that you may be able to prove the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. How do we transform? We transform by the renewing of our mind. As our, as our mind is transformed, as we repent, as we go to him with the changing of mind, we get a radical new view of the world, history, perspective on who I am and what this whole world's about. It's part of my spiritual act of worship. Consider Paul's interaction with the Corinthian church on the issue of speaking in tongues without an interpreter. Paul talks to the church at Corinth and he goes, hey, look, you guys have a problem here. Um, 
in your worship services, people are speaking in tongues, right? So they're speaking in these foreign languages, and they don't have an interpreter, which means you're getting into the, the church service, and everybody's just blah, 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 and nobody's telling anybody else what anything else means. And he says, newcomers are showing up to your congregation, and they're looking around going, this is whack. What is wrong with these people? Paul says this to them, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. Then what am I to do? And here's what he says about good worship in the church. He says, I will pray with the Spirit by the Holy Spirit that is within me, and I will pray with the mind, with the mind, using words I understand. I will sing by the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit within me, and I will sing with the mind, using understanding. You notice the mind aspect there. Quick directive for everybody in this congregation. When we're singing in a worship service together, as you're looking at the worship on the screen, the words, think about them. Meditate on them. Engage with them. Some of us use that time to zone out, and what a tragedy. We're missing out on the opportunity to worship. We are to be engaged with the mind. Same thing with communion meditations. Lock your mind in. With the sermons, I hope. Lock your mind in. Some of you are just coming back to me. Lock, okay, what? Lock, lock my mind in. We'll do. Engage with your mind. So why the mind life? God is the ultimate mind. All true knowledge belongs to God. Thirdly, the mind is a method of worship. Fourthly, developing the mind is the only way to develop actual faith. Some of you might trip up on that a little bit. Developing the mind is the only way to develop actual faith. Philosopher J.P. Moreland, who is a phenomenal Christian, he uh, blew out one of the major atheists of this last century, Kai Nielsen, in a debate. J.P. Moreland was speaking to a crowd, and he says, um, you cannot choose to believe in anything. And the crowd kind of raised eyebrows, like some of you are doing right now. You cannot choose to believe in anything. He said, let me prove it to you. And here, we'll do it as a thought experiment. I want you to choose to believe right now that there is a pink elephant in this room fluttering. It's an invisible pink elephant, but it's fluttering above us in this room right now. Believe it. Can you do that? Now, here's what's going to happen. Somebody might go, oh, I can believe that. And they tell each other, I can believe that. And they try to convince themselves, I believe it. But deep down, unless you have a rational basis for believing it, you don't believe it. You know what you're doing instead? You're lying and he says that's where many of us are with regard to the God issue. We say that we believe, but we don't really have any evidence to back up our belief, and so we feel like we're faking it and we're lying about it. Guys, it doesn't have to be that way. Now, I want to suggest to you that many of us do believe, and even if you don't know a great deal about God or how he operates or what all is going on in the world, you still have legitimate belief because you have experiences with God, right? You meet with him, and so on the foundation of your experiences, you might walk away from it going, yes, I believe in God. I have good rationale for believing in God based on my history. But it's not supposed to end there. We are supposed to go deeper than that. It is God's design and desire that we learn more about him and learn more about the natural world and understand him more. How can I show that that's the case? Pretty simply, consider a romantic pursuit. Women, how would you feel if your husband forgot your anniversary? Don't look at them right now. I know some of them have. Let's take it a little bit further. Uh, what if your husband doesn't know your favorite color? What if he occasionally forgets your name or misidentifies you? What if every time you try to tell him about how your day went or how you're thinking or how you feel, he looks at you and goes, shh, 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 shh. I just want to have a childlike romance. Would you be impressed with such a man? 
Would you? Ladies, would you be impressed with such a man? No. By contrast, what if you had a husband, and this might be a big what if for you, what if you had a husband who was intent on becoming an expert on you? He wanted to master all things about you. He wants to know every intimate in and out about how you think and how you function. He wants to know everything about who you are, what you're about. Uh, if, if you had such a husband, wouldn't that be a great illustration of love? Which would make you more trusting of your spouse? Which would make it easier to equip you both for mutual faithfulness? I'm guessing it's the one where the person seeks out and tries to understand more and more and more. Am I right? If that is true of a romantic relationship, which is meant to be a reflection of our relationship with God, if that's true of a romantic relationship, how much more true of our relationship with the Lord? Do you not see that he, he perceives us as loving him as we invest more of our minds in knowing him? Why should we engage in the mind life? Well, um, turn to Romans chapter 8. The mind life is the battleground for eternity. The mind life is the battleground for eternity. Paul speaks to the church in Rome and he says, look, there's this contention going on and most of us have felt this in our lives. There's this contention going on between the flesh and the spirit. There's a part of you known as the spirit that is eternal in nature. It's created to last forever. And then there's part of you known as the flesh. And as you get older, you feel the flesh more and more. And some of us, as we go through this life, the more spiritual you are in reality, the more you recognize there's a contention in here. I'm waging a war here. And the war is between that eternal part of myself that says, I will serve God, and that fleshly part of myself that says, no, I won't. I'm going to serve myself. I'm doing what I want. Spirit, you're along for the ride. And Paul talks about this battle in Romans uh, chapter 7 and 8. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 5 through 8. Those who live according to the flesh have, if you've got your Bible, their minds, underline it, their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. There's a battle going on right now within you. And where is that battle being fought? How do you determine the victor of that battle? Flesh versus spirit. Do you know where the battleground is? It's your mind. The mind will determine who wins. The mind is going to determine who is the victor between flesh and spirit. And that's the way it works out each and every day of your life for the whole of your life. One day, this battle is not going to happen anymore. One day, you will be liberated from a body that wages war against the spirit. But until that day, if you want to fight and fight well, you need to do so on the battlefield of the mind. Where do you meet with non-believers? Where do you meet with non-believers? Well, some of you might be thinking, I meet them at the coffee shop. I meet them in my carpool. I meet them in the break room or the classroom. Right? I meet them in school. Your geographic location may alter, but when it comes to dissecting the faith, you meet with non-believers on the field of ideas. Every non-believer you've engaged with tends to meet you on the field of ideas. Let me say something. Um, I, I hope you understand already how much I love this work. I hope you understand how much I treasure and value the scripture. 
Most human beings who are outside of Christ will not give you a moment of attention if you try to work toward them from this book. If I took this right now and I went into most college classrooms and I opened it up and said, you know what the Bible says, I would be shut down by 90% of the people in that room because nobody outside of Christ cares what's in this book anymore. It's not the culture we're in. So here's what that means. Everything that's here, I need to know and understand enough that I can take it and speak to people intelligently about it without drawing them specifically to the book until they're ready to be there. There are some people who will never give a hearing to Christ until they have a good reason to believe that maybe a God exists. Can you argue to the point where you show people that maybe a God exists? Look at Colossians, or I'm, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 5. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I say that a lot, don't I? You've got a lot of favorite passages, I guess. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. What do we destroy? What do we destroy? Arguments. How do you destroy arguments? With what? Arguments. Things, these things which come from the mind, we have to be engaged in debate on these issues. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. I love the warfare imagery there. I love the idea that, that, that he's saying, look, we've got this mind life. And you know what we're like? We're like a powerful force that comes in and takes strongholds, fortresses, and throws them down that takes every thought and goes, that belongs to my God. This is what we're being called to. This is the mind life. How are you training for the conflict? Well, there's that inside conflict, and let me encourage you to repent. Change your mind. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 10 says this, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking. Keep seeking is a mind engagement. I'm seeking something. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind, that means position your mind, on the things above, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider, underline consider, that's another mind action. Think about it in this way. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and purity. Uh, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amount to idolatry. Think of yourself like a zombie. He's going, consider this thing a dead thing. This is a dead thing. That's how you need to be thinking about yourself. This is a battle of the mind. This is how we deal with sin day in and day out. My body wants to do what? My body thinks what? Pfft, you're a zombie. You're a dead thing. I don't listen to you. I don't take orders from a corpse. Ooh. How are you preparing for the conflict outside? How are you getting ready to deal with non-Christians, non-believers? Uh, let me make a quick recommendation to you on the mind life. Begin to listen to debates. Uh, for all the evil that is on the internet, there are some very good things on there. One of the great things that's on there are debates between amazing Christian scholars and non-Christians. And here's what you're going to find. If you actually go and listen to the good scholars, you're going to realize that we have much better arguments than the world has. Way better arguments. Let me give you a list of names. If you don't catch all these, it's okay. Go back and listen to the YouTube video and you can get them there. Remember, it's near the end of the sermon. All right. Ravi Zacharias. 
William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, John Lennox, Greg Kokel, Paul Copen, Stephen Meyer, William Dembski, Gary Habermas, Dr. Michael Brown, Hugh Ross, Hank Hanegraaff, James White. There are hundreds of others. If you have any topic that you want to research, understand, and know better, Christians have written whole books, whole works. There, there are sessions you can listen to to take these things deeper, to understand them more deeply. And the Lord your God has called you to love Him with all your mind. Read books. Listen to audiobooks. There are Christian classics. There are powerful new works that are out there. Drink them in. Take classes. This year we're going to provide all sorts of opportunities for growth through this church. I hope that every one of you starts plugging into classes that we offer on, on weekdays and on the weekend to help grow one another and grow yourself in depth. Amen? That's on you to do as well. This is one of those ways you decide to follow Christ or not. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay? Make, it, make a sacred place for Him in your heart. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be prepared to offer a defense. An offense? No, a defense for anybody who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. It is time, brothers and sisters, for us to engage the mind life. There are people right now who are struggling and fighting a battle against a world that need you and I to engage. School's back in session. It's time for us to work hard for the kingdom of God using and feeding our minds. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I pray, God, that we're loving you with our whole selves. Lord, I know it's so much easier to try to zone out and offer ourselves excuses for why we shouldn't have to do these things. Lord, it's frustrating when there's a world who rejects you and um, we don't know how to respond rightly. God, I pray that you would fill us all with your joy as we begin learning more and deepening in our faith. God, I pray that we would, uh, we would get to know the Christian giants who are out there of the faith who are instructing and leading us and teaching us and training us in righteousness. Lord, I pray that we would drink those things in. We love you, O oh God. It's your name we pray.